You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Somebody after the first service said to me, hey, Pastor Ryan, you know, the stage looks really cool, but uh, what would be really funny is if you were hiding in there and then you just kind of popped out, you know. I thought, yeah, that'd be really funny, yeah. (laughs) Or better yet, you know, somebody slide in here and then just slowly start reaching a hand out during the service or something. But anyway, hey, we're doing a message series called Following Jesus Off the Grid. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up, John chapter 3. We're moving forward in the Gospel of John. We started it in August, and uh, it's going to take three years probably to get through the Gospel of John. So we're going to learn a lot, and we've uh, repackaged the series to, uh, uh, you know, uh, the teaching stuff to just help kind of theme it and get you a vision for each little section So today, we're talking about humility. You're going to learn all about humility. Um, I don't have this written on the screens, but humility is really, um, some people have said it like this, it's um, not necessarily thinking less of yourself, um, but it's thinking of yourself less. So it's like, I, I want to challenge you to start thinking about if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you, you have to realize that there is a, a, a life and an invitation to something. He's not just simply saving you from sin and destruction and death and from hell. He is saving you to something really, really wonderful, powerful, experiential, and that is incredible here and now and then a life to come. And so the idea of following Jesus off the grid. It is an idea for you to understand that off the grid means that it's somewhere, it's something that perhaps is dangerous. It's something that is difficult. It's something that is uh, unheard of, unconventional. It's the idea that you are being called into this relationship with the almighty God, the creator of all of creation to a life that is completely different. So you and I drive highways, you and I hike on trails, we see signs that say, stay on the, help me out, trail, Uh, beware of this, beware of that, yes, but what I'm saying is there's an invitation uh, to live a life that is completely countercultural and will challenge us to a journey with a relationship with Jesus Christ, the King and the Creator that is off the grid. It's something very, very different. Um, I'm connecting it to creation, this idea uh, today, um, because I, I think there's a, something very powerful and humbling when you measure yourself, the created being, to the creator in his creation, And the Gospel of John, by the way, if you look back in your Bibles in the very beginning of the Gospel of John, John the Apostle presents Jesus Christ not simply as Savior, but he presents Jesus Christ as Creator. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And then he says, in all and through him, all things were made that were made. And so what I want to do is today is we're going to look at a case study of uh, the John the Baptist and his vision 
of how he sees Jesus Christ, and he is at the height of his career. John the Baptist is the greatest preacher, teacher that had ever lived up until the point of Jesus Christ. There had been a season of 400 years of spiritual darkness, and then John the Baptist is the light. He is the voice in the desert. And John the Baptist, he's even said by Jesus Christ to be the greatest man that ever, ever has lived. Uh, for 400 years, the nation of Israel got no prophecy. For the 400 years, the nation of Israel had no scriptures being written down. And then John the Baptist serves as a transitional period and a leader. He's at the height of success. Thousands and thousands of people are coming. And John the Baptist is for us today a case study in humility and understanding what it really looks like to follow Jesus off the grid. I mean, he is a wild man. He is dressed in camel's hair. He's this wild, rough preacher, teacher, got a leather belt, says that he eats locusts and honey. Like, who does that? That is the definition of granola. So uh, he didn't shop at Sprouts. He provided the food for Sprouts, okay? This guy was out there. Um, So uh, what I want to share with you is... Um, again, connecting the vision, is Jesus Christ is uh, rising to the scenes now. Uh, He had just interacted with a man by the name of Nicodemus, a Jewish scholar. Um, He had uh, confounded him and presented himself as the Messiah. Uh, Nicodemus, a powerful theologian, the equivalent of two to three PhDs, is baffled by Jesus. And now Jesus and his disciples leave uh, Jerusalem and they're going out to the countryside off the grid. And and there's going to be some powerful lessons for what it looks like to follow Jesus, even at the, in the height of your success, in the height of your popularity. And so we see verse 22, chapter three, it says, after this, that this is the idea when he had already been talking to Nicodemus. Uh, he says, after this, John the apostle is writing, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. Jesus is always going to the country. Um, he, the Bible tells us that he often withdrew to the wilderness to pray. There's something powerful about this, a lesson for all of us to understand. Jesus didn't choose the synagogue nor the temple for his education. His investment into 12 men that would change the world was done oftentimes in the country, in the outdoors. And he used powerful metaphors all the time to help them understand everything about the Christian life. I've said it so many different times, but the physical often will teach us the spiritual. When we see the sunrise, there's a message in that. When we see the sunset, there's a message in that. When you step foot to the edge of the Grand Canyon, there's a message in that. The Bible says that generally we can know something about God just by viewing creation. It's called general revelation. There's a very powerful, wonderful invitation for you as a Phoenician, as an Arizonian to embrace not the universe, but embrace the creator of the universe. Are you with me? And so he takes him to the countryside and it says, and he remained there with them and Jesus was baptizing. 
Um, Jesus is doing this ministry. It's very interesting. He's having his disciples do it in chapter four, verse one. It says that Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing. He was having the guys do it. So the guys are baptizing people. Thousands and thousands of people start coming to Jesus. And then look what happens, verse 23. We're introduced to John. John is John, not the apostle who's writing this. This is John the Baptist, the wild granola guy who's totally off the grid all the time. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there. Uh, You baptize where there's water. Uh, We baptized when we first moved onto the campus. uh, We baptized, first guy we baptized was Tommy uh, right here, and we baptized him right there. He said, hey, I'd love to be baptized. And I said, well, we don't really have a baptismal. And he goes, well, that would work. I said, perfect, let's baptize right there. And ever since then, we've been baptized in tons of folks right there in that fountain right there. John was baptizing in a place where there's a lot of water and people were coming, a lot of people, not just some, this is crowds, this is masses. John the Baptist was a household name. He's at the height of his popularity and influence. No greater man ever than John the Baptist, according to Jesus. Even though he's eccentric, he's a little weird, but people are like, dude, he's weird, but you got to come listen to him. He is strange, but he says he's a voice in the wilderness, preparing the way. So John's out baptizing too. There's kind of this tension that's going to start arising in the text. John the Apostle's writing this down for us to learn something here. It says, uh, the water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. And look at the little footnote that the apostle John writes, for John had not yet been put in prison. Um, He's giving the the, uh, reader an uh, insight into understanding um, that this is not at the time uh, when John the Baptist was put into prison. Um, the other gospel writers record what John did. John was an outspoken, powerful leader. He spoke up and he spoke out against corruption in the religious community. He spoke up and he spoke out towards the political community and it ended up imprisoning him. He goes to prison. Um, He speaks up against King Herod, the Tetrarch, who was sleeping uh, with his brother's wife. And John steps in and says, That's wrong. You're corrupt. It's sexually immoral. That is not the way at all. And so he ends up getting in prison. Then he ends up uh, uh, being beheaded because of his outspokenness. And so John goes down in history as a bold, a brave picture of a person whose character is uncompromising and he drew in thousands and thousands of people um, because of his powerful messages. And so look what happens. Verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples, this is John the Baptist's disciples, and a Jew over purification. Nobody knows who that Jew is. Some would claim it was Nicodemus, kind of following in the scenes of kind of checking things out. And the purification is about the idea of baptism. Uh, they were baptizing for a baptism of repentance, leaving an old way of life and following a new. And so there's some discussion that arises. 
And then it says in verse 26, and they came to John. These are John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that is teacher. Um, John was a teacher. John was a preacher. He says, he who was with you, meaning Jesus, across the Jordan to him you bore witness. Look, he's over there. Look, Jesus, it's him. But he doesn't even say Jesus, probably because they're envious and don't want to mention his name. He's baptizing and, help me out, all are going to him. Um, they're frustrated. I don't know if you've ever loved a leader so much that you're defending his fame and name so much and you're, you could get a little jealous if somebody else is advancing and, and succeeding so much. And they take that as a threat. And look what John says, the humble leader, the, the person in which we're going to look at as a great example for us of how we deal with success, popularity, and then go the low route. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Immediately right there, John knows his place. John knows that he has a subordinate role. John knows that he was just a voice. John knows that he was just preparing the way. He knows that his time is ending and Jesus' ministry is taken off. He knows his role. He can role rest. He understands there's a sovereign selection that God gifts people with particular gifts and services, and they have a function, and they have a purpose. And John was comfortable with that. He knew his role very well. Verse 28, he says, you yourselves. In other words, guys, listen, you, you bear bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ. He had said it repeatedly. He'd said it uh, continually, consistently. He constantly said, you look back at John the Baptist preaching and teaching. He constantly said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. He said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He's the forerunner. He's the one that was sent before him. He knew his role. It's very interesting to me, you look at the pages of Scripture and you think of this competition that arises in this comparison. Moses had it going on back in the Old Testament um, when um, God started using other men uh, to do some great work. Uh, Joshua, uh, Moses' protege, comes to him and says, hey, I just need you to know these guys are out doing this and they're, uh, they might be doing the wrong thing. So, and Moses says, hey, time out real quick. Let them do that. That's wonderful. Um, there's this comparison and competition happens with the Apostle Paul when the Apostle Paul's preaching and teaching and we see in the New Testament and then some guys come to the Apostle Paul and say, hey, I need you to know these people are preaching and teaching and doing this, stealing away from your ministry and your influence and he says to them, I don't care if they're preaching the gospel out of envy or rivalry, I don't care at all as long as Christ is being preached. That's the mark of a healthy leader and John the Baptist is the same way. Look what he says in verse 29, it says, he uses that as a teaching moment. He's going to give an illustration. He says, all right, guys, listen. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Well, who is the bride? What's he talking about? He's talking about believers. He's not talking about the church at this point in time because the church hasn't been birthed. The church comes after the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
He's talking about the nation of Israel, and he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Who is the bridegroom? Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. We learn in the rest of Scripture that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church. Believers are the bride. He says, the friend of the bridegroom, and he's referring to himself, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What's he talking about? He sees himself as the best man. How many of you men have ever been a best man before in a wedding? Yeah, you have some special roles, some special responsibilities. Are you jealous? Are you mad when you see your buddy get married to a wonderful woman? Some of you are like, yeah, he stole my girlfriend. Uh, okay, not you. Um, the one of you, the the, folk, the individual that's happy for your friend. I'm gonna tell you a story about my buddy Tom uh, Clower. He's gonna be here next week, Lord willing. He's moving here to help support the church and just do life with us. He's in South Carolina, but let me tell you a story about Tom, the best man. Tom had been deployed overseas. He was a great American soldier. He was a good friend of mine. He was single when I met him. We were in Little Rock, Arkansas. He was um, working, uh, doing his time with uh, uh, Jacksonville Air Force Base. He was in the Air Force. He was in charge of logistics. Me and Tom connected. I loved the guy. He was a city slicker. I was a country guy. Literally, on one time, I did this big outreach at my ranch, my family's ranch, and I said, hey, we're going to have a bonfire, a bonfire, bonfire, a bonfire, and we're going to invite lots of singles to it. I'm going to preach about Jesus. I want you to make some flyers and pass them all out. He goes, you got it, Ryan. I'm your right-hand man. I said, great, good do it. So then he writes, he does it because he's from Jersey, right? So he writes, bonfire. And he passes out flyers to the, like hundreds of people. And everybody's like, where's the bombs? Where's the bombs? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, we got the bonfire, the bonfire invitation. I'm like, dude, that's, a, you know, that's what you get, you know, city slickers. <laughs> they're so dumb. They didn't know. So it's not a bonfire. It was a bonfire. And then he goes back and tries to spell it like bonefire. And I'm like, dude, you're just out of line. This is not working. So anyway, we have this big party. I preached the gospel. It was really powerful. My younger brother was there. It was awesome. Um, later, I, I meet this beautiful girl named Leslie. I fall in love with her. Tom was living in my, in my house at the time. I had a couple other guys. I packed in four or five guys in like an 800 square foot house. It was ridiculous. Charged one guy to live in the laundry room, 25 bucks a month. And he got so mad, he put hours of operation on his door. You know, I was like, dude, you can't do that, man. You only pay 25 bucks a month. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. So anyway, Tom's my buddy. We're sitting there and I tell him I'm getting married. And all the guys are like, dude, that's awesome. And Tom, like his head goes down. He says, does this mean we all got to move out? I said, yeah, it means you all got to move out. And he's like, gosh, you're my closest friend. Where am I going to live? I don't know, Tom. You're a big boy. <laughs> you know? So he goes overseas, comes back. His heart's broken because he's wanted a relationship, wanted to be married, serves God, serves his country, faithful man, living different, doing life as a Christian man. And then I say, I want you to be my, my best man. And he's my, he's my buddy, my running buddy and all this stuff. I ask him, I want you to uh, arrange, I'm going to do this 
and crazy cool engagement uh, invitation. I want you to build me a sign. I'm going to load my beautiful uh, fiance into an airplane. We're going to fly over the rice ranch. We're going to look down and I want you to build a sign that says, marry me. He goes, how big do you want that sign? I said, it needs to be big. And he said, okay. So he goes to every liquor store in the state of Arkansas and grabs their boxes out of their dumpsters. And he goes everywhere. And he I had no idea this was going to happen. We start flying over the rice ranch, and my, my to-be wife looks down, and there's a massive sign in 30-foot letters painted in orange that says, marry me. It was so big, I think they had to pull the plane up in order to look down at it, and I told them, I said, dude, I think we saw that from, you could see that from space. It was huge. So we get to the engagement party. He's there. He's covered in orange, and he's like, dude, I'm always here for you. He had all sorts of issues of uh, insecurity and questions and doubt and discouragement. He had been so faithful, such a good man, and God wasn't answering his prayers in the way he wanted them to at that season and that time. And he chose to humble himself and go to liquor stores to find boxes and paint so that he could be a good best man, a good best buddy to help me celebrate an incredible sacred institution called marriage to my beautiful wife, Leslie. This is what John the Baptist is doing. He's saying, I'm his right-hand man. I'll do whatever it takes. I don't care about the popularity. And so here's what happens. Uh, John is saying, I'm, I'm the best man, buddy. I'm not the bridegroom. Don't you get it? This isn't about me. It's about Jesus. And then he goes on to say, let's look at it. This last little phrase, he said this, he must increase, but I must decrease. Let's say that together. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is your vision. This is what we should do. If we want to follow Jesus Christ and go off the grid, not follow the popular routes, we have to realize that we must decrease. Rule number one in following Jesus Christ is you saying to yourself, I must definitively, decisively, intentionally, absolutely decrease. So what is that? It's humility. Uh, The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace and favor to the humble. The Bible says that God hates pride and arrogance, but he loves the humble, and he gives a lot of blessings to the humble. John the Baptist doesn't fight for attention. He kneels down and says, this is what's gotta happen. He must increase. Today, what I'm gonna do is walk you through what does it look like to decrease in your life? What does it look like to go off the grid, do things different, to be humble. Next week, I'm going to talk to you about what does it look like to increase him, Jesus Christ. John said, he must increase. I must decrease. So we start uh, this. uh, Here's what I want to say. What does it look like to follow Jesus Christ off the grid? This is, I'm going to give you four ways on how a proud person uh, can pursue humility. I am a a prideful person uh, much of the time. I'm a very proud person. I'm proud of the work that we've accomplished. I'm proud of uh, the church. I'm proud of my kids. I'm proud of my wife. I'm proud of my marriage. And those are good things to be proud of, like you. You're proud of the accomplishments that you've made. However, 
in the Bible, so much of the word pride is linked to a very negative connotation because pride becomes the mother sin for all other sins. And it opens you up to basically not even needing a savior because you are your own savior. You can pull yourselves up by the bootstrap and do what you need to do to get it done. And so I'm not saying I'm a humble person. I'm going to say I'm a prideful person. I'm a proud person who's decided to commit to pursue humility the rest of his life. Over the next two decades, Lord willing, at North Valley, I'm serving as your lead pastor. And I believe in my, my heart, in my mind, they will be the greatest years ever. They'll be the best, right? 40-something years old, put in the time, got the education, uh, uh, scored a wonderful woman, built a family, uh, moved out here, adopted a child, launched a church, things are moving, got a campus, we're moving forward. I think the best years are ahead of us. But here's what I want to say. I don't want to be a person who pursues greatness without humility. So number one, how do we follow Jesus off the grid? I'd say number one, you just count the stars. I know it doesn't, might, might, might not make sense, but let me explain what I mean by that. I mean, be so overwhelmed by the power and the majesty. Like when, I don't know if you've ever been camping at night and seen all the stars up there and you're like, wow. And then you're like, those are light years away. There's a shooting one. There's a planet you know what uh, was really cool with a great leader by the name of Abraham in the Bible, um, God said, made a promise to Abraham and he said, I'm going to bless you and make your family great. You're going to have so much influence, you can't even imagine. And you know what the Bible says is he took Abraham who disbelieved. He, the Bible says is that he took him outside and he said, I want you to count the stars. That's it, a good practice for you and me. Count the stars. You can't count them. What is that doing? Lesson, it's a lesson in humility. There is a creator. His name is Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word is God. That is Jesus, and in him all things are holding together. There's a sovereignty and a majesty that you kind of look at when you step up and you see all that. So I'd say, number one, you count the stars. Get a bigger vision for God in your life. Get a bigger vision for God in your life. Next week, I'm going to talk about how do, how do we get a bigger vision for God. You study the idea that he must increase. We study the attributes of God, who he is, what his name is. We study God. Next week, we're going to see Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is all-powerful, almighty. John changes from John the Baptist sharing about his testimony. Now, John the Apostle is going to step in next week and clarify about who Jesus is the deity of Jesus Christ. Most of us has too low of a vision of God. We have a high vision of ourselves and a low vision of God. The greater your vision is for who God is, the greater chances are you're going to be walking in humility, humbleness, blessing, and in favor. Amen? Okay, number one, count the stars. Um, number two, I would say, is just go off trail. When you go hiking most of the time, it always says, stay on the what? Stay on the trail. I'm telling you, as a believer, you got to go off the trail. You go to the danger zones. You go to the places that require courage and faith. This whole thing called the Christian life is not supposed to be a formula that you follow, that everything makes sense. And we've defined greatness, and I've done it too. 
I want my kids to be great. I want them to get a great education. I want them to have great relationships. I want them to get a great job. I want them all these things. But then I step back and I say to myself, but how does Jesus define greatness? Does he say that your kids you got to get this great education? Does he say that they have to make six figures when they grow up? Does he say that? No. Do you know how he defines greatness? He defines greatness by how you can serve other people. There was a big dispute among Jesus' disciples about who was the greatest. And Jesus says statements like this. He brings a child into the mix of this. And he says, unless you have faith like a child, you won't be great. And it's a, it's a hard, challenging message. Like, I wish he would have said, if you're a warrior, if you fight for me, if you're a soldier, if you act like a king, if you man up, that's great. But he brings in a little boy. So the pathway to greatness, I'm just saying, I think it's going to require you to readjust how you figure out greatness. You need to take a different route. I'm not saying it's not a wonderful thing. I've got the highest education I possibly could have so I could serve you. Um, I want the highest education for my kids so that they can serve people, but I never want them to lose the vision what God says greatness is about. It's about serving people. It's about serving him. It's interesting to me, for my business friends, I read a book called Good to Great. It's an old classic leadership book. Jim Collins is, uh, does a great case study on all the most influential business leaders. And do you know what the common denominator is for all those incredibly influential business leaders? They serve people. They have a mindset of humility. They actually take into account that if I think of other people's interests before mine, it'll actually do better for everybody. So I'm telling you, would you go off trail and take a different route to greatness? You're going to need to do that. Number three, I would say you need to camp on the edge. What do I mean by camping on the edge? What I mean is, is I mean that you need to camp on the edge of your depravity. Probably most people would never tell you to do that. They'd say it's too risky, it's too bad. Um, but I mean is that you study sin. Because if you don't, if you don't understand your sin and you don't understand your weaknesses, then you never look to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You never see him as the totality of being a savior. People who need a savior need saving. So I'm gonna challenge you, if you want to follow Jesus off the grid, study your sin, what hangs you up? What messes you up? Confess your temptation. Know your sin. Know the implications of your sin. So you could just take any sin that you're struggling with and go, Lord, what would be the outcome of this sin if I let it go full throttle? Where would it lead me? Would it lead me to an addiction? Would it lead me to destruction? Would it hurt my children? Would it hurt my family? Would it hurt my business? And you will see at the end of the road of that journey of sin... You're like, I want nothing to do with that. And so what I think has happened is too many Christians, they never camped at the edge of their sin. They never look at their sin. They replace it with words like, that was my mistake. My bad. Meanwhile, it's like seeping in and corrupting. The Bible says is that we're born into sin, that sin entered through the world through one man. It was like a virus and it spread to all people. It says that we're born into sin, we struggle with sin. And then what we can do, especially in our culture in the North Phoenix Valley, is we don't even talk about it. So there's no need for confession. 
There's no need for this big word called repentance. So we say you're sorry, but there's no sin, confession. There's no repentance. So I would say camp on the edge. Because if you can think about how wretched really you are and messed up, then you can say, roll over and go, Lord Jesus, thank you that you save. Thank you that you are the forgiver. Thank you that you separate my sins as far as the east is from the west. You don't need a savior until you can see your sin. And we don't need that saving just in one day for all of salvation. We need saving from our destruction and demise, our dysfunction on an ongoing basis. Amen? So camp on the edge of that. I never forget you are still a sinner saved by the grace of God. And I'm convinced of this with life is that it is so important for you to realize um, that when you see your need for Jesus Christ, your worship becomes sweeter. So if you're dry in your faith and you're, you're distant from God, realize and you need Jesus Christ and you screwed up, I'm not saying camp in your sin and hate yourself and be depressed and discouraged. I'm saying camp close enough that you can remember and go, I need Jesus Christ. He has saved me from this. He saved me from that. He offers me this. He offers me that. Just don't ever forget where you come from and don't ever forget what you're capable of apart from Jesus Christ. Number four, I would say push the limits and, and, and serve people. I remember uh, going into my, off, uh, my, my father's office. He's a Christian psychiatrist in Little Rock, Arkansas. He just sold his practice, had been running it for about 35 years. Great example for me is what my vision is. He started the practice, led it and loved it and served people. He's got a great reputation in the state of Arkansas as a Christian psychiatrist. Yes, people can get good educations in Arkansas. He is not just an illiterate redneck that prescribes medicine. He's a very fantastic, wonderful man. He's got a great influence. He told me one time, Ryan, if you want to be great in life, you just need to serve people. And I said, I, 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 I do want to serve people. In fact, my vision statement for my life is helping others understand and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm here. That's why God made me. He designed me to help people. I know that. I believe that with all my heart. I'm here. I, I heard God's word come to me on the back porch of number seven, Monica. And I was all doing a de- Bible devotional all by myself. Just got a new Bible. It was the NIV and the message all combined together. And I was reading tons of scripture. And I felt like the Lord said, Ryan, here's your purpose. You help others understand and respond to the gospel. That's what you do the rest of your life. My dad said, you need to go serve people, whatever that is. If it's in business world, if it's in the church world, you just serve people. The greatest investment you'll ever make is serving people. When you serve people, you're serving the Lord. We're in the service industry at North Valley. We got a family business to run. We run our Heavenly Father's business. Our business is to share and show the love of Jesus Christ. We're in the service industry. You're in the service industry. Jesus said, here's here's the deal. He said, I came. I came not to be served, but help me out, but to serve. He's our vision. He's our picture of what we're supposed to do. I want to challenge you to push the limits on how you serve. Invest your life. I'm far convinced that our greatness will be determined not what we take out of this world, but what we put into this world. 
I'm convinced that the, the greatest contributions that we can make is not what we receive, it's what we give. And so I want to tell you a story of a young little boy um, that I'm so proud of, this story. Uh, this is Camden, a young boy in our church. Uh, he's seven years old. His mom is a single mom who was invited by a member of our church to attend the church some time ago. And uh, Camden and his mom make up a demographic of the largest unchurched demographic in the United States of America. Single moms and fatherless boys make up the largest demographic of the unchurched in North America. They came to our church. They found excitement and joy, appreciation, but there was still this massive need. And the need was the role of a father, a father mentor, a safe man. And so we started this organization, or started this ministry partnership with a great organization, Fathers in the Field, and we launched it this last Sunday, and we commissioned three men. We've got five more men in the application process, so our church can be a church that identifies, equips, and encourages, and commissions uh, father mentors to a, the largest unchurched demographic in the country to single moms and to serve their, their fatherless children, the boys. And so Camden is the first up. Uh, today, we're doing a signing ceremony right after second service, and he will receive a mentor father from our church. And uh, I talked to uh, Mia, the mom, and I said, well, how's he processing this? And she said, he's so excited. He asks every day, uh, is today, when am, when am I going to get my mentor father, mom? When am I going to have my mentor father? Uh, we had another meeting the other day with fathers in the field, and there was a, um, a parent in the room, and she raised her hand, and she said, can I share with you how appreciative I am of this ministry? Here's what our son said. Here's what my son said. He said, Mom, when I grow up, I will never abandon my kids. When I'm a dad, I will never leave my kids. I will be there. I think about the ministry that we get to do, it's service. We're going to make a great difference together. When we give, when we serve, when we invest our lives, we're showing and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. So today, after second service, we're going to do this commissioning or this signing, and I want to invite you to be a part of it over there at the cross. So let me pray for us, and we'll go. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we get to play just a unique role in a unique season and time. I pray for encouragement of the Holy Spirit for every person here in the room and online and outside under the Ramada, that you'd give them a bigger vision for who you are and call them and invite them to deeper levels of faith and commitment that require courage, sacrifice for service, for your glory and the good of all people. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, I, before I leave, I just want to say thank you to all of you who give financially. Your giving is a partnership to make an impact in our ministries and our mission. And so you all make everything move forward through your giving and your serving. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Those of you who have not yet partnered with us to make a difference, I want to challenge you to do that. If this is your place of worship, this is where you say, man, this is home for me, then be involved, be partnered significantly invest. Jesus said, wherever, you, wherever your money is, that's where your heart is. So if your heart's here, invest. Amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, 
give today at northvalleychurch.org.